thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome to uh, the ongoing study of the book of Revelation. We are still in chapter 12, and last week we spent the whole lecture talking about the woman, the woman uh, clothed with the sun, and we've explained how this woman is in our Catholic tradition, the Blessed Virgin Mary, but that she is the Blessed Virgin Mary in also liturgical sense. Uh, God, through His will on the cross, willed that all of us be born through her, and that really her suffering on the cross was to give birth to us, also to give birth to her son in his glorified body. Not that Mary could do that on her own, she couldn't, but it is the way Christ brings salvation to us through this woman. I wanted today to spend time in looking at a historical context where what I've told you last week has taken place and continues to take place. Specifically, I want to talk to you about Our Our Lady of Guadalupe. In one sense, the apparition of Our Lady in Mexico, Our Lady Guadalupe, is perhaps her most important apparition, possibly even more important than Fatima. And yet, it is not well understood or well meditated by many Catholics. Very few really know what happened in Mexico when Our Lady appeared. So we're going to spend this lecture because I want to show you how this is a direct application of what I told you last week. Namely, that Christ the King rules the world through the liturgy and wills that through His mother, His rule may be known to all of His children. And I will expand on this idea as we go through. I, I want to warn you up front, there is a bit of graphics material here because of what I have to describe to you. So um, for those of you who will take the CD, please listen to the CD first before you let your kids listen to it. Some of the material may not be appropriate to younger children. First, let's begin by taking note of one simple fact. Every year, there are about 14 million visits to the Basilica of Our Lady Guadalupe, making her Mexico City shrine the most popular Marian shrine and the most visited in the whole world. Possibly, Mexico City has more visitors than 
many other famous cities like Paris. There aren't 14 million people who visit Paris every year. Just imagine the sheer magnitude of what we're talking about. 14 million people. Why? Another important factor, before I answer this question, is that about 25 popes have officially honored Our Lady of Guadalupe. Uh, John Paul II visited her sanctuary four times. He went from Italy to Guadalupe four times. Right? On his first apostolic trip outside Rome as Pope in 79, and again in 1990, 1992, and in 2002. In order to understand really what has taken place at, in, in Guadalupe, we need to understand the historical context. Because most often than not, all that we have of that apparition is the portrait of Our Lady Guadalupe. That's all we see. But that did not come about in a vacuum. It came in a very specific historical context. Let me tell you a little bit about it. For about, well, you may say since, at, the, at least since 300 A.D., Till the Spaniards came, you had the Mayan civilization, and towards the end of that period, meaning the 13th, 14th, 15th century, you also have the Aztecs. And in Southern America, South America, you had the Incas. One common theme to all of these civilizations is their understanding of the world based on an animist religion. Animism is the notion that things have powers. Interestingly enough, for the Mayan, the gods had to sacrifice themselves, had to spill blood in order to give us life. And you will watch how our religious understanding of the world shape civilization. Our religious understanding of the world shape civilization and our ways of living down to the minutest detail. The Maya, the Zapotec, the Mictec, the Aztec, and the Inca, all of them had a concept of vital force that separated living from non-living matter. But to the Mayan and to the Aztec, that which moves has an inner force. Hence, the moon and the sun are objects that would correspond in our language to deity. They're gods. Because they move. They have life inside of them. To the Maya, the order, the foundation, order is the foundation of the Mayan world. And that's why they were so big on calendars. They had multiple calendars. And to them... The measuring of time and the measuring of season had, number one, important agricultural implication because of the fact that we're living in the middle of the rainforest. And contrary to what people might think, the rainforest cannot really, is not a really arable land. You can't produce a lot of crops in the rainforest. It is not made for that. Hence, you need a lot and a lot of it in order to sustain large population. Therefore, rain seasons was very important to them. But even religiously, it was very important. And that's why their calendar was very precise. The Mayan were good mathematician as far as natural number goes. The Mayan never invented fractions, never worked with fractions, never worked with real numbers. So I don't want to make them bigger than what they were. 
They were very good in natural numbers. And by the way, while I'm on the subject, there is a new fad going on these days. You might have heard of it. You may not have. You will. And it's called 1220. 1220 is according to the Mayan calendar. 21 December 1220 is according to the Mayan calendar, the end of this world. And there are a number of people who are now slapping on top of that a lot of pseudoscience or science concerning magnetic fields, the sun, uh, the sunspots, super volcanoes, and a number of other things. I'm just mentioning it so that in case you heard about it, you know where it comes from. It comes from this Mayan calendar and the fascination that people have with the Mayan civilization these days. For them, human destiny was linked with the celestial beings in motion. And every time there was a major distress, a catastrophe, a problem, they had to consult the calendars and they had to understand the seasons and the times in order to figure out what has happened and to explain it. Therefore, the relationship to the stars and to the sun is what you might find these days among those who are reading their horoscope when you ascribe powers to those objects. The Maya believed that the world had been created five times and destroyed five times and that they were in the sixth cycle. Their gods did not necessarily, were not necessarily good or bad. They, were, they could be benevolent or malevolent, depending on different situations. So their gods did not have virtuous characteristics to where you could say, well, this one is good and this one is bad. It was not like that. It was more complicated. And gods could kind of mesh into each other and then become a different god. It was a... Um, a very complex and rich um, world that the Maya looked into. They believed in an elaborate afterlife, but heaven was reserved for those who committed suicide by hanging, those who had been hanged, those who had been sacrificed, or died in childbirth. Everyone else went to Xibal or hell, which was ruled over by the lords of death. And the reason of the, for this belief is because, as I said earlier, the gods had to work to maintain this world. In fact, the gods created humans by shedding their blood. Therefore, for this universe to remain in motion and not be destroyed, humans had to pay back. Had to pay back. Try to understand these concepts because the more, I'm um, the more I'll go into the description of this, the more you'll feel I'm talking about some planet out there in the universe so far away from us. You have a, you're going to have a real hard time relating to what I'm talking to you about. I wanted to keep this contrast in mind. There's a good reason for it. The Maya also had a highly developed and to modern eyes, well, yeah, to our eyes, highly bizarre aesthetic sense. So slightly crossed eyes were held in great esteem. And so parents attempted to induce the condition by hanging small beads over the noses of their children. The Maya also seemed to go in for shaping their children's skulls. They liked to flatten them, although this may have simply been the, the, the result of carrying the baby on the back. But also they liked the conic shape because it was related to the corn, which was the main source of food. So, conehead, there is a, yeah, nothing news under the sun. The Maya filed their teeth, sometimes into a T-shape and sometimes into a point. They also inlaid their teeth with small round plaques of jade or pyrite, 
according to one researcher, young men painted themselves black until marriage and later engaged in ritual tattooing and scarring. So the gods required nourishment for them to work. If the gods did not work, the world would be destroyed. You had no choice. You had to nourish the gods. And what did the gods ask for? Blood. So, in order to keep the, go- the gods happy, bloodletting was the most common form of sacrifice. Now, this is not common only to, that's not peculiar to the Mayans. Um, we have recorded, for instance, where St. Elijah fights against the priests of Baal, who also performed bloodletting, meaning cutting yourself and letting blood flow. It's called bloodletting. The majority of this, as I said, it's bloodletting. Now, uh, they would voluntarily pierce parts of their bodies, usually their tongue, ears, lips, or penis, and gives blood to the gods. The higher one's position in the hierarchy, the more blood was expected. So there are actually paintings that showcases queens who've actually pierced their tongue and got a rope to go through the tongue to force, to induce more blood to flow. I am relating this because most of us are unaware of the context in which this apparition took place. Because without that, we don't understand its force. Now, the deliberate deliberate taking of a human life was deemed necessary to sanctify certain action, like the installment of a new king or a new temple. And you could not offer anybody. You had to go for someone of a noble quality. And... Anthropologists today, anthropologists today believe this is one of the reasons why there was constant warring between different Mayan cities. It wasn't because they were trying to conquer each other. It was that they needed to offer noble folks. And of course, they're going to offer themselves. They're going to go get it from somewhere else. And that happened on a regular basis. Now, to them, there was no distinction between man, woman, or child. All of them were offered as a sacrifice. The intended victim was stripped and painted blue before being led to a courtyard or temple where the victim would be placed face up. And essentially what will happen is that uh, there is a particular, a specific priest who is called a nakom, who essentially will will rip the heart of the victim as as they are still alive and they will offer it up and then they will burn it. And if this victim was a worthy warrior, its body will be thrown down. And if he was a worthy warrior, someone of importance, there were situations where he would be actually eaten. That happened on a consistent basis. Now, the Incas. The Incas were down south. And what is known about them is their sacrifice to, of children. Um, there have been a number of discoveries by anthropologists and um, um, National Geographic's reported on a number of those finds where they found mummified children who were in very high, uh, um, who, who were in very high mountains. The elevation was extremely high, and they were wondering why this has happened. The Incas worshipped the high peaks that pierced through the South American skies. These rugged summits represented a means of approaching the sun god, Inti, in the Inca religion. And many sacrifices were made atop those cold and unpredictable pinnacles. 
Mountain deities were seen as lords of the forces of nature who presided over crops and livestock. In essence, they were the protectors of the Inca people, and so therefore you had to sacrifice to them to keep, these, um, to keep order in your civilization. Um, human sacrifices were found at elevations approaching 23,000 feet. I mean, you can see that these people were not doing it out of sheer pleasure. There was an imperative, a religious imperative, for them to do that. I am not describing to you people who were fundamentally inclined to evil. I'm describing to you people who, according to the religious system of the world, knew that unless they did that, the world would come to an end. Imagine having to sacrifice a child at 23,000 feet. So truly auspicious events such as the death of an emperor prompted human sacrifices, perhaps to provide an escort for the emperor on his journey to the other world. So here we go, another civilization seeped into human sacrifice. And of course, the Aztecs stopped both of them. Sacrifice was a common theme to the Aztec, because according to the legend of the five sons, all the gods sacrificed themselves so that mankind could live. Now, sometimes after the Spanish uh, conquest of Mexico, a body Franciscans confronted the remaining Aztec priesthood and demanded under threat of death, that they desist from their murderous practices. The priests defended themselves by speaking of their view world. Why they do it? They say, life is because of the gods. With their sacrifice, they give us life. They produce our sustenance, which nourishes life. The engine of every civilization is a a core set of religious belief. And to that extent that this set is going to be Uh, Moving away from the truth, to that extent will the whole civilization be deformed. And so to them, the whole universe was nothing more than a great ongoing sacrifice. So everything is what they call spiritual fleshhood or bodily sacrificial presence of the gods on earth. Everything, earth, crops, moon, stars, people, springs, everything is nothing more than an ongoing sacrifice of the god, of the gods. And therefore, they had to bring that about. Why? Because they had a strong sense of indebtedness. They were indebted to the gods, and they had to pay back. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'm just going to tell you about their calendar. So there were essentially 18 periods in their year. In the first one, seizing of water, children were sacrificed to water gods, most likely by drowning. In the second, flaying of men, gladiatorial sacrifice, dances by priests wearing the flayed skin of victims. This was taking place in the 15th century. I just want you to imagine what that means. And this was ongoing. The third one, the third period, where flayed skins buried, child sacrifice. The fourth one is called the Great Vigil, blessing of new corn, Maiden were sacrificed. In the fifth one, which is called dryness, there were two particular gods, and the names are too long for me to say, but there were impersonators of these major gods who were sacrificed. In the sixth period, meal of maize and beans, impersonators of water deities sacrificed by drowning, and in the seventh, impersonators of the gods sacrificed. Every period had these types of sacrifices coming, going on. Uh, in the tenth one, it gets a little bit more 
I mean, there's a little bit of a diversity there. Sacrifice to fire gods by roasting victims alive. In the twelves, you have ceremonies welcoming gods returning to earth, ceremonial drunkenness, sacrifices by fire. In the thirteenth, you have human sacrifices and ceremonial cannibalism. In the fourteenth, and in almost every other period, like in the fifteenth, you had massive sacrifice. In the seventeenth, it's called stretching, sympathetic magic to bring rain, Women beaten with straw-filled bags to make them cry. Uh, because they believed that making people cry was more pleasing to the Lord because the suffering is greater. They also did that to children as well. These, these data, this data come to us from five different codices written in the language of the Aztecs as well as the Spanish reports. And initially in the century, I mean not initially, in the second uh, part of the 20th century, in our rationalistic word, people, I mean scientists, rejected the, this data on account of the fact that, of course, the Spaniards wanted to justify their own invasion of Latin America and therefore painted these people as monsters, but it's impossible they could have done that. These people were just gentle. Well, there is now, as of the year 2000 and following, more and more archaeological evidence using forensic tools to demonstrate that, no, these things did actually happen. And so now they regard those, those reports by the, by the Spaniards as authentic, although they do debate the numbers. For instance, there's one report that states that the Aztecs once sacrificed 80,000 people. I, I have personally my doubt that 80,000 people could have been sacrificed at one moment because the sheer logistic of doing this would be out of this world. But regardless of the number, the fact is, which is fairly well established today by the historical data that we have, as well as by the uh, evidence that science is bringing about, you are facing a civilization very foreign to the one you're living in today, with values completely different. How did this change come about? Better yet, how could these people be converted to Christianity, to Catholicism? That is the question. That is the message of the book of Revelation. Let me ask you this question. Let's assume that these things were taking place today. Well, first of all, they can't take place today because the conscience of the world is Christian. The reason why the world reacts so negatively to any injustice is precisely because the conscience of the world is soaked with Christian values, whether they like to admit it or not. But let's assume for a second that these things were taking place today. And let's assume I were to tell you, we're going to convert them. Do you think that it would be easier or harder to convert those peoples or to convert the Muslims? Yeah, the question was easier or harder. Why do you say it's easier to convert the Indians than it was to convert the Muslims? Okay. But if you had two people, some are seeped in human sacrifice day in, day out. And others who worship the God of Abraham, which is what the Muslims do. They worship the true God. Now, they don't worship it according to the knowledge of the Catholic Church, but it is the true God. Which of the two you think would be easier to convert? I can see your point. It's hard to convert the Jews. In one, on one sense, yes, but remember, a lot of them did convert. My point to you is that our situation today 
is not that different from what they were facing by then, now was it? In Europe, what was going on in Europe right about the same time that was, this was happening in the New World? The Protestant Reformation, right? Think about the state of the church back then. You had massive corruption among the priests in Europe, right? We didn't have the Reformation of the seminaries yet. And here you are facing this here. Remember, the notion that the world is, is going from, wor- from bad to worse is not a Catholic notion. Okay? The world goes through these cycles, so to speak, where they move away from the church and then come back. There's this movement of grace that flows through the world that goes out and brings more people into the fold. That's how you have to view it. All right. Now, here are the facts. By the way, the Spaniards, let's talk about them for a second. Now, those guys, for the most part, were not saints. All right? They were not saints. Let me t- read to you the small paragraph taken out of a passage on them by the Catholic Encyclopedia. Here, as elsewhere, the missionaries were the champions of the rights of the Indians. In consequence of the repeated protests, a royal edict was issued in 1549 prohibiting Indian slavery in the province while promising compensation to the slave owners. As in other cases, local opposition defeated the purpose of this law. But the agitation went on, and in 1551, another royal edict liberated 150,000 male Indian slaves with their families throughout Mexico. In 1557, in 1558, the crown intervened to restrain the tyranny of the native chiefs. The Spaniards were, for the most part, about gold. In fact, at one point, they dragged the Catholic Church into a court to debate whether these people had a soul. They wanted to negate that the Indians had a soul. So, those missionaries were hemmed from all sides. From without, the Spaniards and these people who were bent on on human sacrifice, who had an understanding of the world so alien to Christianity. And even from within, there is one particular um, Franciscan superior who, when he found out that people who were supposed to be Catholics were still entertaining those pagan pagan, um, customs, performed a persecution that was tyrannical. If, if, I were to, if you were to put yourself in a situation as it was back then, you'd say it's desperate. I mean, there's no way these people are going to convert. And you know what? Humanly speaking, you were right. Because the missionaries, the saints, the holy ones, who went there for the love of the people, were not getting very far. They'd convert some. Then the Spaniards would do something really stupid, which scandalizes these people, and they would leave. Or they would attack them, because they saw the missionaries as a threat to their own interest. And then it happened. The apparition happened in 1531. In 1541, ten years later, Franciscan priest and early historian of New Spain, Motolinia, writes that some nine million Aztecs had become Christian. Ten years. Nine million, almost a million a year. I want you to imagine 
what it would take to convert a million people when you don't have, gasp, the internet. How do you reach a million people without the phone, without the printing press, without roads? How do you do that? Nine million. You know what nine million of the Aztec means? It's a major portion of the Aztec population. It's huge in the span of 10 years. That's what I'm talking about. This is the reign of Jesus Christ. First, let's find out about San Juan Diego a little bit. He was a uh, poor Indian, so he belonged to the lowest caste. He was not a slave. He was a free man, according to the Aztecs civilization. He was a poor man, so he walked barefoot because he was not allowed to put anything in his feet. He belonged to that lower, lowest caste. In fact, he described himself to Our Lady as a nobody. He made mats. He owned a small piece of land. He was happily married but had no children. And he was converted between the years 1524 and 1525. And baptized, as well as his wife, he was baptized by a Franciscan priest, Father Peter Dagrand, one of the first Franciscan missionaries. He was a very devoted religious man. Even before his conversion, he was a solitary, mystical character, prone to spells of silence and frequent penance, and used to walk from his village to the church 14 miles away to receive instructions on the doctrine. When his wife died, he moved and lived with his uncle, Juan Bernardino, in Tolpetlac, which was closer, nine miles to the church. Pardon? Juan Bernardino was his uncle. And he always walked to the church. He was 57 years old, certainly an old age in that time, when, uh, when this apparition took place. He was an old man. After the miracle, and after all these events took place, he... As he received the bishop's permission to move to a room attached to the chapel that housed the sacred image. And he gave his business and his property to his uncle and he spent the rest of his life as a hermit teaching others about the tilma. He died at the age of 74. He had a great love for the Eucharist and by special permission of the bishop he received Holy Communion three times a week. A highly unusual uh, occurrence, occurrence in those times. Pope John Paul II praised him for his simple faith nourished by catechesis and pictured him who said to the Blessed Virgin Mary, I am a nobody, I am a small rope, a tiny ladder, the tail end, a leaf. And John Paul II pictured him as a model of humility for all of us. As you know, Our Lady appeared in Mexico and she was given the name Our Lady Guadalupe. The name itself has caused a lot of controversy. The first thing you need to be aware of is that there is another Our Lady of Guadalupe in Spain. And that shrine in Spain houses the statue of Our Lady, which according to tradition was carved by St. Luke the Evangelist. And St. Gregory the Great gave that statue to the bishop of, um, of Seville, St. Leander, who was the brother of St. Isidore of Seville. When the Moors, the Muslims, invaded, the statue was lost for 600 years and was recovered about 1326, so a little bit before these events, by a cowherd named Gil Cordero, guided by an apparition of Our Lady. 
And this statue was named Guadalupe for the village located near the place of discovery. Now, Guadalupe, I've heard multiple explanations that it means the valley of, no, the river of the wolf in Arabic. Well, I know Arabic, and maybe it's Moroccan Arabic, or it's, uh, it's, it comes from a different point, but Guada means wadi, which means canyon or valley, as far as I know. And Lupe cannot be in that pronunciation Arabic word for a simple reason that there is no P in Arabic. Okay, so, and wolf is certainly not Lupe. There's no connection between these two words. So maybe it's a different source of Arabic. I've heard another explanation, be it the, the um, valley of love. Now that is closer. Okay, Wadi al-Hub. Okay, Wadi al-Hub is closer to Guadalupe than anything that includes a river and a wolf. Well, according to the Arabic I learned. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. What, it ma- what matters, though, is this. When Our Lady spoke to Juan Diego, she spoke in his native language, not in Spanish, in the Aztec language. And she introduced herself by a word that is pronounced Cuatlasupe, or something like that. Right? That's my best pronunciation I can make out of this. Cuatlasupe, which sounds remarkably close to Guadalupe. Now, that word means broken down, qua mean serpent, tla being the noun ending, which can therefore be interpreted as the serpent. Right? And xope means to crush or stamp out. So she introduced herself as the one who crushes the serpent. And it is entirely possible that when he, Juan Diego, said that word to the bishop who was from Spain and no doubt had heard about the recovery or knew about the recovery of this miraculous statue in Guadalupe, it is entirely possible that he immediately linked the two and therefore called her Our Lady Guadalupe. Now let's look at her appearance because most people don't, again, pay attention to what was going on in this painting. She's wearing a delicate cross located on a brooch worn at the top of her, gra- of her gown. Interestingly enough, it is the cross that looks a lot like the cross that Cortez brought with him. And it is this connection that allowed many Indians to come to the faith. Her hands are folded gently in prayer. Her wrists are tied together by a cord to signify that she belongs to someone more important than her. But she wears white fur cuffs, symbolizing someone of royalty. The lady stood in front of the sun. She was greater than the dreaded Huitzilopochtli, their sun god of war, the sun god, which is the major deity they had. She was standing in front of him. Okay? The star strewn across the mantle, she was greater than the stars of heaven which they worshipped, because she had the stars on her. She was a virgin and the queen of the heavens for Virgo rests over her womb and a northern crown upon her head. When Our Lady appeared, we know exactly where she appeared. You take the stars on her mantle, you move the stars back in time to that precise moment and you will see that the stars on her mantle fit perfectly the position of the constellations. And Virgo is right there in the middle, according to what I can see. I have not verified this, but according to what I read. 
the blue-green hue of her mantle. She was a queen because she wears the colors of royalty. The black cross on the brooch at her neck. Her God was that of the Spanish missionaries. And Jesus Christ, her son, who died on the cross for all mankind. Now, the black belt, she has a black belt worn um, around her side. And that, that meant to, to the Aztecs that she was with child because she wore the Aztec maternity belt. The four-petal flower over the womb, she was the mother of God because the flower was a special symbol of life, movement and deity, the center of the universe. Her hands are joined in prayer. She's not God, but clearly there's one greater than her, and she pointed her finger to the cross on her brooch. The design on her rose-colored garment, she's the queen of the earth because she's wearing a contour map of Mexico telling the Indians exactly where the apparition took place. Now, scientifically, there's been many, many examination of this. Now, you know that this was made on a tilma, which is made out of cactus fiber. This cactus fiber decays between 20 and 60 years. This tilma has existed now for 400 years. The colors are still as bright as when it was uh, presented by Juan Diego. Microscopic examination revealed that there were no brush strokes. The image seems to increase in size and change colors due to a known, a known property of the surface and substance, and substance of which it is made. According to Kodak of Mexico, the image is smooth and feels like a modern-day photograph produced 300 years before the invention of photography. Uh, the image has consistently defied exact reproduction, whether by brush or camera. Um, several images can be seen reflected in the eyes of the Virgin. Uh, they are believed to be the image of Juan Diego, Bishop Juan de Zumaraga, Juan Gonzalez, the interpreter, and others. So what they did is that they took the eyes and they blow them up 40 times. And as you know, in human eyes, there are impressions that are made when you see people like much impressions of photographs. And likewise, they found the same thing in her eyes. The, the distortion and place of the images are identical to what is produced in the normal eye. So the way the images are distorted in the eye on that tilma are identical to what happens in a living eye. And as I said, the stars coincide with the constellation in the sky on December 12, 1531. So when they saw that image, it was a pictogram for them. It was a catechesis that spoke directly to them about who she was. And that was made specifically for them. Now, there is another really interesting fact to this, which I've not yet been able to verify. And that is, according to Jewish custom, she is also dressed as a Jewish princess. So she has not sort of lost her identity of where she comes from. But somehow, the two meet in that tilma. One more fact. At the bottom of this image, you see a creature that looks like the head of a boy, and behind him, he had wings. But the wings are not your typical wings drawn as in the West. They absolutely look like the wings of an eagle. The wings of an eagle. And remember, in the book of Revelation, we're going to see that. We know that the woman was carried to the desert over the wings of the great eagle. So, from a standpoint of Revelation, this fits the portrait perfectly. From a standpoint of the Aztecs, it meant something to them. Uh, this is what I'm talking about right down here. If you can see it, you see those wings, which are that of an eagle. It is said that this is Juan Diego 
holding Our Lady. It was not a, a cherubim. It's not a cherubim, I mean. And those are really the, the, the wings of an eagle behind him. That's one explanation. Um, this is, of course, a rendition which is not uh, exact because you don't see all the stars and you don't see, um, you know, you, you see the, the uh, that, um, you, you see how her, her hands are tied together right here and you see this um, piece of cloth I told you about that indicates that she's pregnant. Okay. So she came with the baby in her womb. That's why she's also presented to us often as the defender of the unborn. Now, here's the latest. When in Mexico City, recently, they allowed, partial, they allowed abortion for the first time. Only Mexico City is allowing this, up to 12 months. Uh, there are pictures on the Internet which have been taken recently that showed that the womb of Our Lady glowed. They've taken those pictures where you see the womb glowing. And uh, according to the associations of Catholic nurses and doctors, when you examine the image up close, it looks like um, an ultrasound. And you can see in the shades the presence of the infant. I have not been able to verify that, of course, but that's what was reported recently. Now, here is... The message. This is what Our Lady told St. Juan Diego. Know and understand well, you the most humble of my sons, that I am the ever-Virgin Holy Mary, Mother of the true God, for whom we live, of the Creator of all things, Lord of heaven and the earth. I wish that a temple be erected here quickly, so, that, so, so I may therein exhibit and give all my love, compassion, help, and protection. Because I am your merciful mother to you and to all the inhabitants on this land and all the rest who love me, invoke and confide in me. Listen there to their lamentations and remedy all their miseries, afflictions, and sorrows. So in this first message, you notice that she says two things, know and understand. Know and understand. Right? She kept all things in her heart. You have to reflect. You have to learn. You have to study. It isn't enough to hear it. You have to study it. You, the most humble of my sons, you're not, we're not going to be able to understand what Our Lady is saying to us without humility. Right? She did not come to the proud Spaniards, and she didn't come to those who were in power. She was outside of the city on a separate hill, and she appeared to one who called himself a nobody, a leaf. I am the ever-Virgin Holy Mary, mother of the true God, for whom we live. So notice how she brings about conversion, by combating the heresy. You Aztecs and Incas and Mayas do not live for gods that are constantly sacrificing themselves for you. You live for the true God who sacrificed himself for you and is not asking you to pay him back in blood. He is the creator of all things. So notice the rational, the rationalistic approach, reason, the reasonable approach. Everything is created. Sun, moon, stars are all created by him and him alone. Lord of heaven and the earth. And then what does she ask for? She asks for a temple. She asks for a church. 
to be built here. And then from that church, she is going to give her love, compassion, help, protection to all her children. To all her children. Incidentally, a shrine, when a place receives the, the designation of a shrine, officially, it means something more than just a place where there is a statue. It means what Our Lady is saying. Listen, she said, Because I am your merciful mother to you and to all the inhabitants on this land, and the rest who love me invoke, invoke and confide in me, listen there, in that temple, meaning that she is present in that shrine. That's what a shrine is. It's a place where God manifests His presence in a very special place, in a special way. Effectively, every church is a shrine, because, in that sense, because He is present in the Most Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist. But here she's saying, in that special place, when you come to me in a pilgrimage, when you come to me and present your petition, I will listen to you and I will give you what you need. Know, my little dear, this is the second one, that I will reward your solicitude and effort and fatigue spent on my behalf. Don't you think that Our Lady knows when you're tired? She does. Don't you think when she knows that there are a desire in your heart that is not being satisfied, that you may feel lonely, that you may feel abandoned, that there's no one to listen to you? She does. But if instead of feeling sorry for yourself, you took all these feelings and give it to her in saying a rosary, even if you don't feel like saying the rosary, even if the rosary means nothing to you, even if you say the rosary and you feel completely dry, and you'd much rather be watching a football game. But just because you've done that, she will reward you. St. Louis de Montfort reports the case of one woman who went to her personal judgment and all her sins were being weighed. And her sins outweighed her, her, her virtues, not her virtues, her, uh, well, acts of virtues, if you will. And so she was bound to hell. And then Our Lady came and put into balance the one rosary this woman said in her life. One rosary. And it tipped the balance. One rosary. I'm not saying this to you just because of this cute sense of piety that sometimes we sophisticated Californians shy away from because, you know, it doesn't have the allure of an iPod. I'm saying this to you because it is embedded in the book of Revelation. It is in Scripture that if you are indeed the sons and daughters of God, then you are indeed the sons and daughters of the one to whom the whole world has been entrusted. And when you do those things, even though you may not understand them, you're doing her bidding and she will take care of you. In her third message she says, Hear me and understand well my son the least. This is translated from their language. This is how he would speak. That nothing should frighten or grieve you. Nothing, nothing should frighten or grieve you. Let not your heart be disturbed. Am I not here who is your mother? Are you not under my protection? Am I not your health? Are you not happily within my fold? What else do you wish? 
Do not grieve, nor be disturbed by anything. Do not grieve, nor be disturbed by anything. Now, I'll tell you right away, this is not something that you can just kind of, you know, switch on autopilot. And then, henceforth, you're not grieved and disturbed by anything. It doesn't work that way. You have to hear, you have to understand, and you have to work at it. Because that requires us to be detached from so many of those things that we consider important in our lives. And they are important, but they may not be the most important thing. Our job, your job, my job, if you want to call it a job, a vocation maybe is a better way. Our vocation is not primarily to save the world. Our vocation is not to worry about the political situation in Lebanon, in Iraq, in this country, or anywhere else in the world. Our vocation is not to worry about where this state, this country, is going to. Our vocation is simple, much simpler than that. Our vocation is to go to heaven. That's it. Our vocation is to go to heaven. Now, it might sound selfish. It might sound simplistic. But I don't define my vocation. God defines it for me. He wants me back home. So, I set my face to heaven. I have to go home. Now, along the way, as I'm going home, now I'm doing God's will, I'm going home, along the way, He might drag a whole bunch of other people with me. But that's His job, not mine. Remember, what's his name? Um, um, the guy who was running in the movie? First come? Remember that guy? What did he do? Was he intent on saving anybody else? Was he intent on, on proving something? Did he want to demonstrate to others what they had to do? How they had to do it? No. He set one goal for himself. He wanted to run. And as he started running, a whole bunch of people started running after him. Right? St. Simon the stylist wanted to live as a hermit. He attached himself to a, um, well, a sort of cylindrical rock because he wanted to limit the freedom he had to offer it up to God. And as usual, when you're trying to live all by yourself, what happens? So, he had to climb on that rock and preach to people for the rest of his life when he wanted to be all by himself. He wanted to save himself. That was the motto of St. Hardini, the teacher of St. Charbel. The wise man saves himself. The man of wisdom saves himself. The woman of wisdom saves herself. Our problem is that we are so worried about everybody else that that worry eat us alive. John Paul II puts it this way about the Guadalupe event, as the Mexican Episcopate has pointed out, meant the beginning of evangelization with a vitality that surpassed all expectations. No one would have thought that in ten, in nine years, you'd have, or, yeah, in ten years, you'd have nine people, nine million people converting to the Catholic faith. No one. Yeah, it exceeded all expectations. God is much stronger than any obstacle we have facing us today. There are many more on our side than, than there are with us than against us. 
Christ's message through his mother took up the central elements of the indigenous culture, purified them, and gave them the definitive sense of salvation. And I will say to you that these words are going to be the way in which Islam will be converted. Islam will not be converted by force. Islam will not be converted by wars. Islam will be converted precisely in this way. Taking those elements which are indigenous to Islam, purifying them, and giving them their definitive sense of salvation. And that is the work of Mary. She will make it happen. Let there be no doubt in anybody's mind, because that is the central role that God, that Christ gave her. It is through his mother that he wills to reign, as long as this reign of mercy endures. That's why Guadalupe and St. Juan Diego have a deep ecclesial and missionary meaning and are a model of perfectly enculturated evangelization. That means that in order to evangelize anybody, you better make friend of them. You better understand how they live, what's important to them, what is right and what is wrong, and help them see it. That's what it means. That's how we evangelize. Let us finish by this prayer of John Paul II for life, which is taken from an encyclical, The Gospel of Life. O Mary, bright dawn of the new world, mother of the living, To you do we entrust the cause of life. Look down, O Mother, upon the vast numbers of babies to be born, of the poor whose lives are made difficult, of men and women who are victims of brutal violence, of the elderly and the sick killed by indifference or out of misguided mercy. Grant that all who believe in your Son may proclaim the gospel of life, with honesty and love to the people of our time. Obtain from them the grace to accept that gospel as a gift ever new, the joy of celebrating it with gratitude throughout their lives, and the courage to bear witness to it resolutely, in order to build together with all people of goodwill the civilization of truth and love to the praise and glory of God, the Creator and lover of life. Amen. Our Lady, Maya, Mary, uh, Mother of Life, God bless you. We have some time for questions. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, I meant 2012. If I said 1220, uh, it was a mistake. It's 2012. The question is in regard to this Mayan date. The, next, it, the date is 2012. In five years from now, they're saying the world will come to an end. Well, I'm saying... what I. It's not about an era coming to an end or not. I'm saying that if you go out there and listen to what many people are talking about, many will tell you either an era will come to an end, a world will come to an end. And I'm saying to all that from a Catholic standpoint, we are not to pay any attention to any of this because it is not founded on sacred scripture and has no validity as far as we can tell. Yes. The relationship between the, our, uh, the book of Revelation of the woman close with the sun and the apparition, what is the relationship? I think it's pretty evident because what you see here is a woman who has the stars around her mantle. She's crowned with those stars. The sun is behind her. She's closed with the sun. And the moon is right under her feet, which is exactly what you see. But in the Aztec, 
um, understanding of things. The sun is also the powerful God to whom they sacrifice. And the moon is also representing the serpent, which is the God of death to whom they sacrifice a lot. And she's therefore stronger than both of them. No, they were not added later. They were part of the image. Nothing was added later. No, absolutely not. These are all part of the picture. The rays streaming are in the tilma. Absolutely. Not necessarily as flames as you see here, as it's uh, depicted here, but it is definitely the rays of the sun behind her. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Ramsey. Yes. My understanding is that it is still there. I have not read anything to the effect that the statue was not there anymore. Yes. When you visit the shrines, you receive special graces. Yes, you do. There are actually indulgences attached to visiting shrines. uh, Beside the fact that many, many people receive the healings and many miracles are attached to Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yes. In order to answer your question about how Christ reigns through his mother, very briefly, because as I said, we spent an hour last time talking about this. We need... Yeah, we need, to, we need to understand that the, the central theme of the book of Revelation, Revelation, right? The, the way the ancients wrote were not... The ancients wrote differently than we write today. Today we write linearly. I'm starting here, I'm going to end there. They did not write this way. They wrote, it, they wrote more like a mountain. The most important chapter would be somewhere in the middle of the book. Uh, for instance, uh, Deuteronomy is written like that. The most important part is when Moses is up in the mountain. Uh, Revelation is written that part. The most important part is right in the middle where the woman is revealed. And the woman is revealed in lieu of replacing the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was effectively this box that contained the manna, the rod of Aaron that had budded, and the, the, um, the tablets of the law. But on top of it, there was the seat of mercy or the mercy seat. And on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the only time when he would allow to do that, it is said that God, the presence of God, the Shekinah, would manifest itself atop the mercy seat. Therefore, that mercy seat represented the throne of God. Right? So that's what the ark represented. That which in substance contained the divinity, yet is not divine, and from which the divinity rules. And instead of seeing the ark, we see that woman. Okay? Now you associate that with the other very important passage in John, where Our Lady is at the foot of the cross. Her presence there, and the recording of it in the book of St. John, is not because Jesus forgot what to do with his mother, and suddenly decided to take care of it there and then. It is because it is integral to, her, to his mission. You see, right at the end, the very last thing he says was, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Guess what? The long labor, mother, your labor is ending now. You've given birth to a son. That's her suffering. So it is through her suffering, participating with that and under Christ, that she gives birth to all of us. That's it. That's why she's in the pangs of birth. That's what she was in. But you need to understand it also in the context of the liturgy. This happens every Sunday. Every time we celebrate the liturgy, this is happening to all of us. So that's why, for instance, St. Augustine will say that the church is the womb of Mary. We're all born through the church. So there's all these imagery that point to her role in this world as the mother of mercy.
Of course, none of that would happen without Him. Again, this is not about Mary, it's really about Jesus. What we're trying to say here is, Lord, we want to adore You the way You want to be adored. We want to follow You the way You want to be followed. This is how You set it up. So, we give You glory by listening to Your mother. You understand? And St. Louis de Montfort has a very lapidary formula for this. He says, every time you say Mary, she says Jesus. Every time you say Mary, she says Jesus. That's what he meant. One more question? Yes. Yes, indeed. The question is, when St. Juan Diego presented the tilma to the bishop as the proof he was asking for, what Juan Diego wanted to show him was not this picture. He didn't know it was there. What he was going to show him was the Castilian roses, which, had, which he had found on the hilltop, and he had picked and brought them to Our Lady, whom she arranged, and she arranged those roses herself. And Castilian roses, you need to understand, Castile is uh, very low altitude, and roses grow there, and... Mexico is very high altitude, and it's in December or in November, some period of the year, I remember exactly when apparition took place, where, I think it's in December, where, where it was impossible for those roses to grow. So that, in and of itself, was already a natural miracle that he knew the bishop would understand. So that's why he dropped the tilma, because he wanted to present the roses. And then the image formed. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.